Welcome to Season 2 of Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. If you're new to the show, I speak with other educators from across environmental and natural history education. We share experiences and ideas and practice to hopefully give others inspiration for developing and refining the ways in which we support public exploration and engagement with nature. For those of you who've been listening to the show, thank you very much for your support. It's a brand new year, and I've started using some new tools which will hopefully help with better and more consistent audio quality. So what can you expect from Knowing Nature this year? Our film club episodes will be returning. Those are where I sit down with a few friends with our environmental educator hats on to discuss films and how they might support or make our jobs more difficult in terms of fostering those positive attitudes towards nature. I'll also be interviewing educators from environmental organizations about how they got started and about the programs they deliver. We'll be talking about the thought processes behind the development of the programs and also the nuts and bolts of how the sessions actually run. In this first episode of 2021, I speak with Lorna Fox, Head of Engagement and Learning at the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust, about how she developed her interest in nature, the most successful programs that the Wildlife Trust has to offer, including Iron Age experiences for schools. We also talk about a new program which the Trust is piloting called Restoring Our Future. This program aims to help schools develop their own green spaces, as well as help teachers to build their confidence in using those spaces. So, welcome to 2021. Welcome to Knowing Nature. Here's our first episode. Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. In this episode, I'm speaking with Lorna from the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust. Welcome to the show, Lorna. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, about yourself and about the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust and the programs that they offer. But first, it's your first time on the show. Would you be able to um, introduce yourself to us? Of course, yeah. My name's Lorna Fox. I work currently for Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust as their Head of Engagement and Learning. Um, And my background is uh, in primary teaching, qualified primary teacher. Um, But I worked in the environment sector first, then went into teaching and then came back out to go back into the environmental sector. And I've got a background in natural sciences um, and my teaching qualification, my PGCE, Um, But actually, I started off doing history in French, so I kind of moved into the sciences gradually through time. What got you interested in nature? I grew up um, in South Devon, uh, just on the edge of Dartmoor. So I had this wilderness right on our doorstep. So you could walk out of the house and straight onto Dartmoor. Um, And also what I was surrounded by was a farming community. So a lot of my friends at primary school lived on farms. And when we went and had an overnight stay or went and played for the day, we were fully outside the whole time, fully immersed. Mud, water, wet, cold, hot sunshine, whatever. That's my memories of my childhood was being outside in nature, immersed, getting really mucky. Um, And if we weren't on a farm or on Dartmoor, then we were beside the sea 
again, it was quite feral, you know, it was quite wild. I can't really remember many adults being present <laughs> in that childhood <laughs> experience. Um, it was just about me and my friends and being quite wild in the outdoors. Just spending lots of time out in nature is a really common theme that I think a lot of us as environment educators and people who are interested in the environment, that's a common theme that a lot of us have. Adults aren't always in the picture. When when adults were in the picture and you think back on them, what kind of roles did they play in terms of fostering your interest in nature? They, if I have a think about a specific example, so I think on the whole, uh, they were very hands-off and very encouraging of independence and just going for it and risk-taking and you know all the things that come with being a bit wild, a bit feral in nature is just they're there, their presence is there. There wasn't a sense of you have to do this because that's what being outdoors means or you should be wearing this or it was just this kind of really free abandon a lot of risk and just this kind of you know another memory I've got is driving down this hill through Dartmoor all of this nature around you know all of these no noises and I think you can probably hear it's quite an emotional connection for me and my dad had a 2CV car that had a roll back top and he said stand on the back seat and stand up and look out and put your hands on the roll bar. Wow. So as I drive down the hill, you're going to get a real sense of like being out in the fresh air. And that's what me yeah. and my sister did. So we went all the way down this hill again with this kind of amazing abandon of just our heads poking out the top of this car, just going, and just all these amazing, and we weren't driving that fast and it was sunny and, you know, so in all different shapes and formats, we were encouraged to be really independent and adventurous and nature was always there. What didn't exist was this um, need to have scientific knowledge. My mum is a phenomenal natural scientist and has got the most amazing knowledge about multiple species and she'd always walk along and kind of mention there's that and there's this and oh look at that bird and you know her ID skills were phenomenal um, but interestingly even though it's the field that I work in I didn't pick that up what a, <laughs> I wish I had but I didn't I've had to work really hard on that but what mm. I did pick up was this really strong um, emotional connection to the outdoor world yeah, I think that's so interesting is, is um, talking to people about what roles the adults played in those those earlier years. And I think it's so common that it's mostly about spending time outside and an adult might be there, they might not be there and maybe in the background, but often they don't stick out in the foreground of, of people's memories. You know, as you said, as the person who's there, you know, as... Um, an identifier and an explainer they're they're there in this kind of watching supporting kind of role rather than a knowledge giver you knew they were always there so you knew you were safe mm -hmm. but you were we were expected to make our own decisions 
Yeah. And creating, creating your own fun in the outdoors, which I think is so, so interesting and very different in, um, an urban setting, you know, where a lot of kids nowadays might find it a bit difficult to make their own fun in the outdoors that isn't using a, a smartphone or device outdoors. I think that's a, a choice because actually it's interesting that you mentioned that urban setting because that's the other place, you know, my childhood has kind of got me to where I am now, so involved in the environmental learning sector and and in the natural environment sector across the UK um but the time I spent so I spent a good decade working in urban natural environment engagement work and I was so excited doing that work I loved it was in London and I loved working with communities in London getting people into the natural environment that London offered and I do think it's a choice because from that experience of a very dense urban setting that was so diverse the setting and the people so diverse actually there are opportunities to be quite wild it's just different to maybe being on Dartmoor our big national parks it's different to that it's different to being in a field but Mm -hmm. there are still opportunities to be wild i think that's a that is a good point and also there's a an element of needing to rethink what is an outdoor space that you can go and play in and what counts as a natural kind of space i think a lot of people might not think of the fact that even if there's just a a sports field you know a big grassy field that that is outdoor space. There is nature there, and it's an outdoor place that you can go and play in. But I think people don't often maybe think of that kind of space as as nature, as natural. It's kind of too controlled. But uh, as you say, I think it's about creativity. Um, so let's change track a, a little bit and talk a bit about the work that the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust does and the work that you do with them. What would you say is the most popular program offered by the, the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust? One is our mini beast hunting. It appeals especially to um, key stage one um, and the early years. Um, but we also have the same session for key stage two, and then we take it through into secondary as well. Um, but that's one of our most popular sessions. And I think it's because it's got this really simple formula that you're outdoors, you're immersed, you're investigating, and you can do it wholly independently or as part of your team. You're discovering for yourself, and you're then doing the identification by putting those mini beasts into different trays according to leg numbers. So really simple. And you're then doing a bit of analysis at the end. Um, and it, it, you know some of the um, participants that we have coming along are from all sorts of different settings so there could be a presumption in Gloucestershire that if you're from Gloucestershire then you're going to be fairly rural and you're going to know straight away what a woodlouse is what a slug is and that's not the case so it's really a great session for everybody 
you know, the natural environment is such a leveller and mini beast hunting levels everybody. And if we then extend that session out to families, families absolutely love getting into that session too. So it kind of appeals to all ages. So that's really successful um, session that we've got. Another session that we have that is really successful is our Iron Age days, which I kind of say reluctantly because we're a natural environment organisation, but we offer these days where you have a living history day and you learn about the Iron Age. And that's because um, some of our work is carried out on a site that is a scheduled monument. It's a triple SI um, we have to be very sensitive to the triple SI areas and we kind of stay off those areas, but we can look over and see them. Uh, and we have to be sensitive to the scheduled monument. But we have areas where we have reconstructed this living history and we tie the whole day into the natural environment and what the natural environment would have looked like X years ago to what it looks like now and how we as individuals, groups, communities, as the human species have made an impact on our natural environment through hundreds of years. Um, and it's super popular. Not only do the kids, but the teachers also get the chance to dress up in costume. They also get to be really immersed in the natural environment get quite muddy and grubby, be a bit wild. They're outdoors the whole time, but we've also got um, living history buildings that um, they sit in and they do a bit of bushcraft. So because it's a whole day experience and it's fully immersive, all, like I said, tied into the natural environment. I probably wouldn't give a thumbs up to the session if it wasn't tied into our DNA as an organisation, and that is... The celebration of the natural environment. Um, so the reason that you have this, because the organization is called the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust, you look after a few different sites in Gloucestershire. That's right. Yeah, we've got over 60 sites. And then one of them was an Iron Age settlement. That's right. That right. Yeah, it's called Greystones. Greystones Farm in Borton on the Water. And it's, uh, it's steeped in history. Um, and I think often, you know, People are walking on the most amazing history in the natural environment, but they're just sort of walking past, chatting away and maybe kind of taking a photo with this 21st century iPhone or Samsung gadget, you know, in the kind of juxtaposition of, hey, there's this huge, great big rock right next to you that your ancestors 2000 or however many years ago would have put there or moved there or in building the fort would have been like an entrance to something and you're stood there however many years later taking a photo with your iPhone it's kind of an amazing sight to see so yeah Greystones is an amazing site we've got Crickley Hill as well which is a similar site and that's got an amazing view over a large swathe of Gloucestershire um so these the iron age days are they um day events weekend events or um is there like a shorter program that schools would book or is it sort of a, a weekend event and then schools come public come 
No, the Iron Age um, sessions are specific to schools, so we don't open them out to families, and you've just given me a fantastic idea. <laughs> so they're bookable for schools to book for the whole day. If you do want to book it for half a day, then that option is there too. Yeah, they sound really great because it's kind of um, another one of the themes in terms of getting kids to develop pro-environmental attitudes is spending time in the outdoors, which this would do, you know, half day, whole day program. And one of the most, um, when kids are in the outdoors, one of the ways in which they kind of keep themselves engaged is by playing games and using imagination. And I could see having a half full day kind of Iron Age experience, you know, you can use your imagination, put yourself back in time and, and live a day in the life in the Iron Age. When I first started at Glossier Wildlife Trust, a bit reluctant about the the session because of it being very um, rooted to history and us not being a heritage um, or, or historical organisation, but we're about the natural environment. But the threads we've ensured are seamed through the session about the natural environment. You're right in it. You're not just... Um, having an experience as a bystander or a visitor but you're right there you're in it you're wearing the clothes you're doing the things they would have done really in the natural environment because it's very raw you know they're sitting in this hut and it's cold and it's drafty and there's wood smoke in the hut and they're trying to light a fire and then I think they get a chance to make a kind of patty of of bread and so it's a real experience and we have worked hard to ensure it's it's really seemed with really core messages about about the environment and I think that message about how however many years ago the natural environment would have looked like this and then through time it has changed and now have a look at it and look at what we as a human species have done to influence and change the natural environment and then have a step back and think critically is that good is that bad or can we not even make a judgment is it just a change in history it was so popular that in the end of 2019 uh, 92% of our visits in November and December were for the Iron Age session Wow. So really yeah. high percentage. Yeah. What the Iron Age session does is gives us a chance to still be getting learners into the outdoors and immersed in nature, even in the colder months. So you mentioned that in these sessions, the um, the Wildlife Trust staff will be leading bushcraft type activities. And then also this discussion about how the, what the landscape would have looked like and how it's changed. Mm. Um, could you talk to us a little bit more about what what do the staff do in the session like how do they make it happen I have to shine a really thankful and grateful light on our volunteers because it's the kind of session that couldn't run without volunteers because it's pretty hands-on and there's a lot going on Um, and they'll do activities such as there's a, a chance to make a wall that is made out of weaved wood and Mm -hmm. the children come along with different bits of mud so they're making the side of a a hut excuse me 
wattle and daub wall is that right exactly that's the one yeah uh-huh. yeah it's really interesting to see because you'll stand back after the wall is formed and it might be quite a different shape and format over here to the right and then in the middle it's kind of like this and then over to the left it's like this and but it's a really nice thing to see that there's this one thing that's been formed together by a whole class in different teams but that each individual has made their stamp they'll go on and do a bushcraft activity of learning how to light a fire and then the individual fires that they've lit will then come into the middle of the hut and create one big fire and that's then the start of doing some iron age cookery as well maybe a slightly daft question but it's one of those practicalities that i can see um other folks thinking about is does the site then end up with loads and loads of these these walls dotted around like what what do you do with these walls afterwards (laughs) (laughs) so the walls the walls afterwards are then broken down before the mud then dries the same spot where the wall that wall was constructed by one class is used again um and the mud is then washed off to go back into this one because we've got like a kind of mud pit the iron age session is not a session that could be delivered on a daily basis nor would I want that to happen because I think you know we've got other sessions like our river study that's really an amazing session to give you the chance to actually wade into a river and to study in the river immersed in the river and I I mean whilst the Iron Age session is it is really strong it's really good and schools love it I would, over the next five years, like to see a bit more of a balance coming about. And for for example, in the next five years, 50% of our sessions are the river study and 50% of the Iron Age. It's a marriage between giving these learners a brilliant chance to be in the outdoors, a great learning opportunity tied into their curriculum, but also making sure that our site doesn't get exhausted by one session constantly. That I know is a, is a big struggle for for a lot of organizations yeah. that look after um, protected sites, you know, or wildlife reserves. Yeah. The site is not just there for kids and schools and people. It's also there for for the plants and the animals. So what would you say is your favorite session that the Wildlife Trust offers? In a formal setting, mini beast session, like the river study is is amazing the challenge we have with the river study is you have to walk for quite a while to get to the river so it's probably a bit of a toss-up between the two but I would say the mini bee session because perhaps my own personal preference plays a part because I find invertebrates absolutely fascinating have done all my life ever since I was little and I used to create wood lice colonies in my garden. At <laughs> I used to build houses for them um, under no instruction, just that was kind of my my pastime on weekends. So I think, I think that would be my favourite session from a learner's point of view. It's because it just, like I said at the beginning, it ticks so many boxes. Knowledge, skills experience any learner of any age can get involved with 
So, you know, it, it, it gets the learner out into the outdoors. It, whilst it is about the invertebrates that you're finding, those mini beasts, it's also about running around and kind of, you know, if you want to be, you can be slightly competitive to your other teammates and find more mini beasts than they are. Um, if you don't want to do that and you want to just study the detail of one, that's fine too. I think it's quite a free session. You know, if I compare it to the Iron Age session, the Iron Age session, uh, or even the river study, the river study because of the nature of where you're standing has got to be fairly structured and and rigorous because it, of the higher risk um, of being stood in a water body. But there's something so free about the Mini Beast session where you've got this brilliant learning opportunity that can be as formal as you want it to be or as informal as you want it to be but it's also got the opportunity to be quite wild and it gives people a chance to get really excited and fascinated and like I said before discovering and you know you give them magnifying glasses you know immediately they're in this world of scientific skills without even realizing that's what they're doing i love it and and of course the other thing that we have to think about because being ex-teachers working so closely with schools you know sitting on advisory groups i'm currently a governor and at a large um, urban school you know curriculum is essential and we just we can't ignore you know, we wouldn't be doing our jobs as natural environment organisations if we were just throwing out stuff that had absolutely no relevance to fulfil the curriculum and, and for those teachers. So the Mini B session is also really deeply rooted in curriculum too. So it just, again, it ticks so many boxes. Um, can I ask a bit about what what's the range of equipment that you have available for kids? Because I know some organisations will give basically nothing and then others, you know, there's a whole slew of, of kit, you know, you'll have like little containers, you'll have pooters. Um, what is the, the range of kit that you provide during the mini sessions? Luckily, and I say this as a kind of intro to, to my answer, I think luckily I come from the school of creativity where no matter what kit you give to an individual, especially to a primary age pupil, um, the session isn't necessarily about the kit. The session is about the experience and the discovery and the habitats and wildlife and the natural environment that they're going to be immersed in and touching, smelling, seeing and finding out about. Um, But kit can add to bring a real added value to that experience. Now, I say that introduction because the Wildlife Trusts are quite continuously um, underfunded. Uh, We don't have huge, shiny kit out on our sessions, but we do have amazing experts and phenomenal natural environment settings and the real deal, you know, the real wild deal that those kids can get out into and discover. 
But saying that, for the mini bee session, it's super simple. You've got trays, you've got magnifying glasses, you've got pots, you've got brushes, you've got spoons to go and collect the mini beasts, to scoop them into your pots, to bring them back to the trays, to be able to identify them according to how many legs they've got, and then to do a further analysis of them with your magnifying glass. So we've got all the kit that is needed, but we, we've got a selection of microscopes, but we haven't, for example, got a suite that having done the mini base session, you then walk back to a suite of 15 microscopes, one per two pupils for pupils to take their mini bees to and then analyze further. And I think that's where I would say we're developing our secondary offer because I do think for a secondary offer, we need to review our equipment and kind of get it a bit updated. You mentioned that you're of the school of, of creativity. And I think uh, mini bee something is one of those things where you really, you don't need, you know, loads of fancy kits like nets and pooters and things like, you know, I've done, led some very successful mini bees hunting where all you give them is some kind of container, any kind of container and a spoon, yeah. you know, they, they'll use the spoon, whatever way they need to use it. Right. That's, you know, a little scoop as a shovel yeah. and knocking things off of branches, you know, yeah. wedging it into little crevices, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, so you don't you don't need very much. Is there a piece of equipment that you found is not useful? You know, where where it kind of becomes a distraction rather than an aid. Yeah. So you mentioned it, and that's the pooters. <laughs> <laughs> and and for those who don't know, uh, can you describe what is a pooter for? <laughs> a pooter is a pot with a plastic lid on top and the plastic lid has got two plastic quite wide straws coming out of it yeah yeah one goes to where the mini beast is and the other one can be used to suck so that the mini beast comes down through the tube and into the pot yeah that's it and then there's usually a bit of gauze or mesh on the one that you you are sucking through so you don't end up inhaling the the creature. <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah. a bit vague on on the pooter because many, many years ago when I first started out, I did a session with pooters and it was so abysmal that that was it. I just said, if you want to use, you know, for teams that I've managed, if you want to use pooters and you've seen it successful, for those that want to have a go at that, then fine. But for me, I've never seen a success session with pooters. So they're a piece of field equipment that's useful if you're an entomologist out in the field. You know, you need to be really delicate, but it takes practice to use it. You've got to clean the mouthpieces in between schools, and then you have to make sure the kids aren't sucking in the wrong end. And it's, yeah, I think they're, they're definitely a piece of kit that a lot of places will have, but end up never using because they're just so much faff and you yeah. you can use a you know a spoon and have much the same result when you're working with kids and families anyways yeah totally and i would say in in contrast to the pooter the bush beating net and i didn't say that about our mini bee sessions because we might at certain times of the year in our mini bee sessions be using our bush beating nets 
and bush beating nets to me are one of my favorite bits of equipment so simple yeah. you can just make it out of an old t-shirt and a wire coat hanger if you if you haven't got the funds or get an old bit of material and you know preferably white so you can see the creatures tie it around an old coat hanger and wire coat hanger and that's it i used to do it that with um a bush beating net is just a, a large sheet or something that you put under a bush and then you hit the the bush and things fall into it yeah. um but i used to do that with you know working in an environmental education you know things are outdoors so you end up with laminated bits of paper <laughs> yeah and so i used to use old laminated resources you know a big a3 sheet of paper that was laminated you know it's gotten a bit beat up so you're you're not using it for its original intended purpose but it will serve perfectly well as a beating tray so <laughs> um it can be even even more straightforward than that and just a piece of paper will do really it's just yeah. a contrasting surface yeah, yeah totally and i love like in this discussion that we're having how actually what we're going to is simple stuff is i was going to say just as good well let's say simple stuff means that you can learn just as much. You don't have to be going to the correct natural environment resource suppliers and, you know, spending 120 or 250 pounds for your class. You could, like you said, just go out with A4 bits of white paper and you'll still be able to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is the most effective program that the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust has in terms of um, fostering like pro-environmental attitudes in kids and in the public? That's such a good question. And I would say that we still have a way to go for our sessions to be sessions that create pro-environmental behaviours. Um, because at the moment, our sessions tend to be come and get immersed in the natural environment with us. And I'll come to kind of that in a minute, like the immersion in the natural environment. But our sessions tend to be come and get immersed in the natural environment with us, learn about the science. So improve your science, knowledge, experience and skills, and then go back to the back to school so you can then kind of put that into your curriculum learning our sessions aren't come and get immersed in the natural environment understand the value of it and how essential it is to your life and therefore what you can do to protect it in the future that's not what we're doing at the moment but it is what we're talking about doing because we've realized that what we're doing is teaching science in the outdoors basically um what we're giving as an experience is an immersion in the natural environment and what we're quietly expecting therefore is this improved science knowledge skills experience but also this emotional connection to nature and i think often because we're rooted in the science world that emotional connection to nature is underrated and is seen as the knock-on effect you, you get by being in the outdoors and being immersed. And I would like 
us to get a bit stronger on that. And I think the wildlife trusts, because we aren't an organisation, you know, Glossier Wildlife Trust and across the wildlife trust movement, we're not an organisation that has got huge amounts of money. And so our experiences have got, for example, um, at Greystones Farm, we've got facilities, but your experience is going to be quite wild because of the environments that we offer. But I think we would do well, and, and we're talking about this, of moving from this presumption that because you've been in a wild experience, you're then going to become an environmentalist in the future to actually being perhaps a bit more instructional so being more so more um actively encouraging a pro environmental attitude rather than just assuming that if you give the experience they will develop it on their own is that exactly. what you mean exactly yeah exactly we're doing it with communities we're talking about now communities taking action for nature themselves and us no longer um acting as the experts but more that those communities are the experts they're the ones that are rooted in their communities and understand and know the most about their community and nature in their community so how can we learn from them and how can we facilitate communities to take action for nature themselves in the meaningful context of what it is for them now with talking about and wanting to do that much more with communities but I would like to see us offer something, and I'm going to use the word feral. <laughs> I'd, I'd like us to offer something a bit more wild is probably the, the better word to use for schools that isn't seen as, okay, so this is informal. This is like an informal thing, but actually this is formal. This is formalised. This is structured even though it's wild, it gives pupils the chance to enhance their health and well-being, but feel part of a team as well as work on being independent. And at the same time, being in the natural environment, feeling, smelling, sensing, touching, and learning about the natural environment benefits that come daily to our lives and therefore how important it is that we take even small or bigger actions for it, whether that's on an individual response at school or on a class response or on a whole school community response, you know, individual and collective actions for nature. I think we're, we're talking at the Wildlife Trust movement about and at Glossier Wildlife Trust about our sessions not just being about schools coming to us, but us going into schools and being facilitators where we can help support schools to secure funding, to create um, improved green environments at school so that they're not reliant on always coming to us to get this outdoor natural environment world experience and then integrating the environmental action agenda into their curriculum. So it's not just in science, but it's in every different bit of the curriculum, and it gets seamed into the school, 
and isn't reliant on one individual in the school leading on the green agenda. And when those people go, it can slip off the agenda a bit. That's such an interesting point and so so challenging a, a direction that some organizations are talking about. Um, a lot of charities, uh, environmental education charities, but ones which aren't place-based um, are really taking that track. And I think that's something that a lot of um, place-based conservation charities are um, really struggling with because there's this really difficult balance to be struck, right? Where you, you need those school visits coming to your sites to fund your work. And so a lot of the effort then goes towards um, that encouraging students to come out to your sites. Whereas if you helped the school develop their own ability to use their own green spaces, um, it might be more effective from a, a bigger picture of, of environmental education, but more difficult to, to justify if you're a very place-based organization. Yeah, really, really tough for place-based organisations to to see how to approach that. I think all of us, whether we're in formalised settings, so educational establishments, or whether we're in, for example, um, myself in a natural environment setting, but we're deeply involved in learning in some shape or format. We and and all of us as individuals because we've been learners, we know that we don't necessarily learn fully by just doing something once. And we don't see behaviour change happen or behaviour and attitude change happen by just doing something once. So, you know, when you reflect back to an amazing trip that you might have had in your childhood it might have had a phenomenal impact on you like my trip to the natural history museum you know it's burnt in my memory but it might have just been a memory and not something that's just become part of your weekly or daily life and so we know that one-off trips don't create the same impact as an experience that happens time and time again and I think we as natural environment organisations could do with supporting schools, educational establishments to provide that time and time again. You know for many schools, most schools actually, getting in a coach six times in a term is just not feasible, uh, not affordable it's just not going to work. So how do you create that natural environment learning that still has potentially an expert on board that's coming into the school and supporting, but the environment is set up at school. And so it becomes normalised for all the children at school, no matter what their background is. I think it has to happen in that school-based setting. And then I think us supporting schools and working with schools that that school establishment becomes a community establishment you know during the holidays that natural environment setting and for example the school hall for natural environment activities is still open for mm -hmm. families to access not just the pupils and things like that I think we could we could really support 
schools in in getting to that place. Some of the wildlife trusts have already taken this forward and have done a really strong job of integrating what we do into a school's life, um, especially at Devon Wildlife Trust. But it takes a lot of hard work. So are are you currently looking for um, schools in Gloucestershire to kind of partner with on this kind of a journey? Is that something that Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust is is currently working on? Or is it still in, in an even earlier phase than that? No, we are. We are exactly that. We're looking. Um, it's very much a pilot, but we are looking for six schools at the moment. We're call, calling it Restore Our Future. Um, and, you know, ideally, these kind of things need to last over over a 10 year period, if not longer, so that they're really integrated into the lifetime of the school and they can buffer against changes in government and changes in educational policy and things like that. Um, so this really is a pilot. Um, COVID is pausing it, of course, because of the um, limitations to us being able to go into schools. But we will be as of mid-February, um, and we were prior to this national lockdown, looking for those six schools that we can start going into and supporting them. That's great. And I'll put links to, I'll put the email in the show notes and a link to the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust's uh, website in those show notes as well. So did you have any other like last minute thoughts? We've covered quite a lot of ground. We have covered a lot of ground and it's just been such a pleasure. I think the only thing I would say is the natural environment is the most amazing, fascinating place. And it's in all of us, you know, it's in all of our DNA. We are essential to it and it's essential to us. So I just can't underestimate for anybody who's listening how important it is to to get out there and to get the future generations really involved in being in the outdoors. Well, Lorna, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and giving us some of your time. It's been fabulous to hear about the work that you and the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust are doing. Thanks very much. Thank you to you, Victor. Thanks so much. As always, links to our full show notes can be found in the description down below, or you can visit our website at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.